When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. It is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. In his book, Anti-Fragile, Lebanese writer, uh, Lebanese-American writer and statistician Nassim Nicholas Taleb writes, some things benefit from shocks. They thrive and grow when exposed to volatility, randomness, disorder, and stress. Some things grow stronger when they're subjected to stress. Systems can benefit when they're subjected to a shock. The most obvious example of such a thing might be the human muscle, right? You stress and overload your muscles and they build back. They grow stronger. They become less fragile. This morning, what I want to suggest to you is faith can work in precisely this same way. Over the next three weeks, we will be looking at John chapter 11, leading up to the season of Advent, where we'll take a break from our sermon series in John. Um, But over these next three weeks, up to Christ the King Sunday, the end of the church calendar, we'll look at this remarkable, dramatic story of Lazarus's resuscitation. There's much to glean from this, as we'll see, but the focus this morning is on this idea of anti-fragile faith. I believe that in the opening verses of chapter 11, there is an invitation for us to move toward a more resilient trust in Jesus. And what we see is that stressors, shocks to the system, need not crush our faith or destroy our trust, but can actually serve to make our faith and trust stronger and more robust. Now, that doesn't just happen accidentally. You're all aware, we're all aware, I'm sure, of stories of faith and trust that are diminished, impaired, crushed by the sufferings of this world. Circumstances conspire against us. A loved one passes away or falls ill. We uh, have a prolonged period of un- or underemployment. We struggle in our health physically or mentally. And we find ourselves with diminished faith, with our trust impaired. Perhaps you yourself come this morning in uncertainty, in difficulty, unsure of where you stand in our faith, in trust in Jesus. It's unclear how to proceed. Whatever your posture, whatever your position today, there are specific truths that our text this morning directs us to that might lead to a more resilient faith. And I want to work through this opening section of John 11 with our thoughts organized really around three precepts, three principles. And our staff was joking this week that after a string of very significant, unusual Sundays, we had a bilingual service, um, we had the parish retreat, and last week was All Saints and baptisms. After all of that, very lot happening, a lot going on, this Sunday is just a basic Sunday. And these three precepts are basic. They're back to the basics. And the three statements that will guide our time are this. Jesus' love is not a force field. Jesus' purposes are not our own. And Jesus' presence is transformative. So first, Jesus' love is not a force field. In his song, Walk Away, singer-songwriter Ben Harper croons about leaving the one that he loved and says, it's hard to do, but easy to say. That statement applies to this first principle as well. 
If I were to ask you, do you think the love of Jesus means you can live a life free from suffering and difficulty, I have little doubt that you would say no. You understand, I suspect, that the love of God, partaking of the love of Jesus, is no antidote for the realities, the limitations, the difficulties of human life. We even talked about this not that long ago in this sermon series. But it's easy to say and hard to believe or hard to do. This opening passage of John 11 highlights repeatedly that Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, are loved by Jesus. In verse 3, Lazarus' sisters describe him as the one Jesus loves. They, in verse 5, in the voice of the narrator, specifies that the three of them share in the love of Jesus. Jesus himself, to the disciples, calls Lazarus our friend. Some translations render it our dear friend, my dear friend. The identification in verse 2 of Mary as the one who pours perfume on Jesus, wipes his feet with her hair, something that will actually happen in John 12, emphasizes this sense of intimacy and esteem that these people share with Jesus. They are loved by him. They love him. They are friends. This point is driven home, is emphasized in these opening verses. They're in the love of Jesus, but suffering, weakened, Sick, dying, dead. The love they partake of is no antidote, no force field against these realities, no get-out-of-jail-free card. To be loved by Jesus is to remain fully human, subject to these things, subject to the ravages of time. Ben Harper sings in that very same song, Time has taken my tomorrows and turned them into yesterdays. That happens for all of us. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but keeping this reality in front of us is, I think, a part of cultivating a more resilient and less fragile faith. Understanding that the declaration of the gospel over our lives is not about an escape from human suffering and limitation. In fact, the story of the gospel in the Gospel of John is about salvation in the person of Jesus entering into human limitation and suffering. Keeping that reality in front of us empowers us to not be caught unaware, to not be surprised by the challenges and difficulties we might face. There is an invitation toward a faith-filled realism. But I think there's better news here as well. So often, isn't it the case that in our suffering, in our experiences of difficulty, we, in our hearts and in our minds, so quickly move to questioning our relational status before God, questioning our share in the love of Jesus. Circumstances are difficult, and they communicate to us that we are separated from God's love, alone and cut off. And I think the invitation of John 11, of this first principle, is to rest in the knowledge that there is this disconnect between your circumstances and your status as one beloved by Jesus. I, as your pastor, as your priest, long for you to grow in experiential awareness of God's love for you, for the circumstances of your life to communicate to you the faithfulness, the blessing of God. But there is this disconnect. However well things are going or not in our work, in our relationships, in our financial life, That is not related 
to God's posture and disposition toward you. You do not have to be a winner in life in order to be assured of God's love. Things can be difficult. Things can be bad. And you can still rest and find solace in the knowledge that you have a part in the love of God. You don't have to question your place before him. If nowhere else, there you stand secure. At the culminating point of the remarkable chapter, Romans 8, in verses 38 and 39, the Apostle Paul writes these famous words, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a bedrock, unchanging promise that you can set your trust in. There is nothing transactional. There is nothing circumstantial about what Paul writes there. You don't have to be winning in order to stand assured of the love of God. At the cross, in his death and resurrection, Jesus has completely demonstrated the love of God for you, has fully and finally secured your status as someone who shares now in the love of God. So it can get as bad as you can imagine. And you have no need to question this reality, your status. You can trust that God is with you and for you even in the midst of the valley. He's for you. He's with you. You are secure in that love. So the love of God, the love of Jesus is no force field, no antidote to the sufferings of life. But it is the foundation of a resilient trust in Jesus. So the second principle then from John 11 is that Jesus' purposes are not our own. This is another one that doesn't sound like great news. But look at verses five and six. They read, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so Very important word here. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. That so at the beginning of verse six only makes sense in light of the reality that Jesus has a different agenda, an agenda that is distinct from our own. We expect it to read, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So he dropped everything and came running. That coheres with our sense of purpose for the situation. A friend is in trouble. Someone you love is dying. You have the capacity to do something about it. Jesus, get on your horse. Get out there. Respond. That makes sense of my purposes. Now, a number of scholars have emphasized emphasized that Jesus' delay here is related to guaranteeing that Lazarus would be dead for an extended period of time before he arrived. If you factor in the geography that's laid out and the travel that would have been involved, most scholars suggest that by the time Jesus arrived, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Comedian David Perdue makes the joke that wakes, holding a wake for someone who's died, is a totally anachronistic and unnecessary practice in our day and age. The idea of a wake, of course, is someone has passed away and you have a really loud, ruckus party And you kind of see if they wake up, right? Because you're not sure that they're dead. And Purdue makes the point. He's like, science now has progressed to the point where we've figured that out. They're dead. We know that they're dead. But in the first century, things were a little more up in the air. 
And a question could hang over whether or not someone was all dead for a day or two after they were thought to pass. So scholars have read into Jesus' delay here, a desire to ensure that Lazarus was recognized as dead, dead, before he arrived on the scene. And that delay is connected to Jesus' distinct purpose. In situations of suffering and difficulty, in times of weakness and illness, my perspective, my purpose, are wholly related to the quick alleviation of that suffering, right? As expeditiously as possible, end it. What is the path of least resistance? Just bring it to a close. But Jesus' purposes, demonstrated and declared here, are different. I thank you for that point of emphasis. <laughs> In verse 4, Jesus suggests that he is animated, declares that he's animated by God's glory. That is the overarching purpose for Jesus' life and work throughout the Gospel of John. We've seen it before. Jesus is all about bringing glory to his Father. And his delay, allowing Lazarus to be known as all the way full-on dead, somehow means more glory for God. Because it means Jesus' work is not a matter of healing, but is something deeper, grander, more mysterious, as we'll see in the coming weeks. It means something richer and more awe-inspiring will be on display, and that results in the greater glory for God. This is what directs Jesus' actions. This is what motivates the timing of his response. Recognizing this as Jesus' purpose can help lead to a more resilient posture of trust. Much of the conflict in our lives, much of the confusion we feel in life is related to unmet expectations. I thought it was going to be this, and instead it was this. But Jesus consistently in the Gospel of John demonstrates and declares his primary mission is the glory of God, the glory of the Father. So you do not need to be in the dark or uncertain about what is animating Jesus. Above everything else, in every situation, in your life, Jesus is primarily acting to bring glory to God. You can have that clear expectation. And that means his timing may be different than our own. That means that his purposes are distinct sometimes from mine when I'm like, just end this difficulty. This understanding can direct our life of faith with him, our expectations of him. He is reliably about the Father's business. He is consistently about the pursuit of God's glory. So we need not be surprised, confounded by that. We submit, we relinquish our sense of timing, our purposes to his own as an act of trust. You think of Jesus' words about prayer, where he says, if you ask for bread, God is not the kind of giver who would give you a stone. And so the invitation there is to ask, ask out of our hearts, ask out of the inclination of our own desires, but in a posture of trust and relinquishment, recognizing that it feels like bread to me, but it hasn't happened yet. So in God's purposes, in the glory of God, for now it's a stone, and I don't need it. I don't need it. But you might ask, and I think it's a valid question, if Jesus' purposes are the glory of God, where does that leave us? Where does that leave me, my weakness, my limitation, my suffering? 
How could I see the love of Jesus in my difficulty? In verses 14 and 15, after his disciples misunderstand his meaning about sleep, Jesus makes it plain in a surprising way. He, in effect, says a very un-Jesus-like thing. He says, I'm glad that Lazarus is dead. What? I'm glad I wasn't there. For your sake, so that you may believe, so that you might have faith. Jesus' purposes and our well-being intersect at this point of faith. Jesus' purpose for the glory of God and our well-being intersect, connect around our belief, around our faith. In revealing the glory of the Father, the glory of God, especially in his victory over death, Jesus is acting on our behalf as well. In demonstrating himself to be the way, the true and truth and the life, the living God over our final and greatest enemy, Jesus is attending to our most pressing need. It is in our best interest that Jesus reveals the glory of God such that our faith and our belief increase. The psalm appointed today for morning prayer is Psalm 34. And in that psalm, there's a verse written by the psalmist that reads, Blessed, happy, congratulations to those who put their trust in the Lord. Because Jesus loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he waits. For the sake of the disciples, it is good that this terrible thing, death, is visited on their dear friend. Because in this tragedy, they all, dearly loved by him, will see the glory of God and their faith, their trust, become that much greater, that much more robust. One of the reasons we have done this sermon series on the Gospel of John has been that we as a community might grow in faith, that we might feel the force of this binary decision that's there in the Gospel, light or darkness, belief or unbelief. There's an invitation or call in that to greater faith in Jesus, greater trust in him. But the thing is, is that is for our benefit. Faith is connected to experiencing, realizing, seeing the glory of God. The glory of God is revealed often in suffering, in tragedy, and our trust increases out of that such that we might live in line with the truth. We might live in accord with reality more fully. And by faith, we see more clearly, more deeply, the glory of Jesus, the glory of God. Many of us, many of us are overwhelmed by the complexity of life by the the seemingly zero-sum nature of our decisions. Things feel like they're getting more complex, I suspect, in our lives. There are conflicting values, competing interests. I've been shocked in my own family by how much more complex decisions have become as my children have now aged to the place where they have formed perspectives and opinions. Where there once were two, there are now four. If you count the cat, there's five. Something as simple as what movie to watch together has become this complicated thing, and someone is always going to be disappointed. Someone's purpose is going to win out. But the complexity of our lives, the complexity of our well-being in relation to God's purposes in Jesus to glorify himself, they're not too much for Jesus. He can reconcile these things. And as he sets the glory of God as the center of his life and action in the world, 
You and I are cared for in that. He is acting to meet our most pressing needs. We can trust that as he reliably, consistently, unchangingly seeks the glory of his Father, he is at the same time acting in love toward us. And this brings us to our third and final precept for resilient faith. Jesus' presence is transformative. It changes things. We can trust that Jesus is acting for the glory of God and in that somehow attending to us and our well-being. But I recognize that his timing is distinct from our own. And it takes patience and it can be hard. It can be difficult. Some of you have been waiting for a really long time. And in that waiting, we have the promise of his presence, his transformative presence. This is unadulterated good news, I think. Our hope lies here in the knowledge that his presence with us in such circumstances changes things. It's transformative. So we don't wait, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We see this in John 11, in the experience of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Mary and Martha bring their circumstance. They bring Lazarus' illness to Jesus. And notice in verse 3, there's actually no request. It's just a declaration. The one you love is sick. Making him aware, lifting the situation to his attention. That makes all the difference. As Lazarus' disease, his death, and dying are brought into the orbit of Jesus, they become the arena of God's glory. They become an occasion in which the glory, the goodness, the grace of Jesus is revealed. As we keep company with Jesus, as we lift our hearts to him, the heaviness we experience and we invariably feel, the sadness, the weakness, the disappointment, our lives, our sufferings, they become the arena in which God's glory can be displayed through Jesus. As you name your sadness and grief, your limitations, your intractable frustrations, these inescapable, unavoidable things in human life, they become the occasion where Jesus displays the glory of God. Revealed, perhaps, in the grace to endure, in the grace to be patient, Revealed, perhaps, in the transformation of our character through these circumstances. That's what Romans 8.28 is about, that he turns all things for the good of those who love him. That is, he turns them toward shaping and forming us in the likeness of his son. They become occasions of God's glory, revealed at times in his miraculous intervention. And some of you have stories of that. If you are looking for a specific action item from this sermon, it would be to follow the example of Mary and Martha. Name your circumstances to Jesus. Name your sadnesses. Name your grief. Name to him the one you love. The one you love is sick, is sad, is tired and disappointed, is in need of mercy and grace. Name such things. Confident of your status as one beloved by him and confident in him and his good purposes, that you are well cared for. And name them confident that in him, with him, this circumstance, whatever you are facing, 
does not end in death. This is the true and great miracle in John 11 that we will see. The immediate miracle is a resuscitation, not a resurrection. But it points us to Jesus' transformative power over even the experience of death, over even the grave. Speaking of saying things you already know, you and I will likely die one day. But for the friends of Jesus, the story does not end there. That is why Jesus can declare to his disciples that those who see by his light do not stumble, no matter how dark it gets, even in the shadow of death. And this is why Thomas, Didymus, the twin, the double-minded man in the Gospel of John who struggles to believe, can say here with confidence in verse 16, let us go and let us die with him. Because with Jesus... The story does not end in death, and even death is changed. Even death is diminished. What Thomas speaks of, what Thomas speaks out of there, that's resilient trust. That is anti-fragile faith. Born out of the reality that Jesus' presence with us in life, in weakness, in death is transformative. It changes things. May such faith be found among us. Secure in the love of Jesus, confident of God's good purposes, let us today put our trust more fully in him. Sure that with him, death is not the end. And in the end, all shall be well. Whatever your circumstances today, you have a glorious future in Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.